0: Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast.
1: Just imagine that nine feet of water coming in. And instead of going out after a couple of hours, as it did with Sandy, that water just stays in. And that's what sea level rise will look like. And I was like, wow, that's pretty profound thought experiment.
0: Hey, adapters. That was my guest this week, Jeff Goodell, writer for Rolling Stone magazine and author of the new book, The Water Will Come, Rising Seas, Sinking Cities, and the Remaking of the Civilized World. Jeff and I dig into the book and also talk about Rolling Stone magazine's long history of climate change coverage, those topics, and much more. Hey, it's my 60th episode. Thanks to all you listeners out there. And thanks to those who have been with the podcast since the very beginning. I look forward to the 100th episode. Also in this episode, you will get to meet my new intern, Alex Stocksdale. I also want to thank Andrew Lewin, host of the Speak Up for Blue podcast. It's an ocean conservation podcast. Andrew had me on for a second time where he and I dug into the role of podcasts in science communication. It was a very fun conversation with Andrew. Links to that episode are in the show notes. Please check it out. Okay, just a reminder, America Daps is a charitable organization that needs your support. If you've been waiting and are ready to do it, I'll make it easy for you. Please consider giving a tax-deductible donation. You can find links to the Flip Cause Donate page in the show notes. Also, if you're interested in sponsoring a specific podcast or having me speak at a public or corporate event, please contact me via the website AmericaAdapts.org. Speaking of speaking, I want to thank the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service for inviting me to speak to their Climate Academy training course at the National Conservation Training Center. That was a lot of fun. Also, I was invited to be the keynote speaker at the Potomac ASLA annual meeting, and that's the American Society of Landscape Architects, and that will be in a few months. All right, upcoming episodes. I have been hyping this For months, it's finally here, California Adapts. On March 12th, it will premiere at the South by Southwest Festival. It is a very unusual series. I have many different voices representing experts throughout California. This three-part episode series is being produced by Randy Olson, a name you've all probably very familiar with. I'm really looking forward to sharing California Adapts with all of you, so stay tuned. All right, let's jump into this conversation with Jeff Goodell. Hey, welcome back, Adapters. On today's episode, I'm very excited to be hosting Jeff Goodell, contributing editor to Rolling Stone magazine and author of the recent book, The Water Will Come, Rising Seas, Sinking Cities, and the Remaking of the Civilized World. Welcome to the podcast, Jeff. Thanks for having me, Doug. Okay, so you've been doing a lot of media. Have you been surprised by the reaction?
2: Yeah,
1: I suppose I have been surprised a little little by the reaction. I mean, I think that it's gotten uh, more attention than I kind of anticipated that that it would. I think that it just partly because of the storms that we had um, this fall, the sequence of hurricanes and things. I think it really highlighted for a lot of people kind of what's at risk. I'm pleasantly surprised by the discussions that the book has stimulated.
0: When you work with your editor on this book, so The Water Will Come is the name of the book. And I'm just curious, when you had conversations with your editor, was there any notion of saying The Water is coming versus that future tense?
1: And that was interesting. I, the title came my publisher came up with the title i had a different um working title but as soon as i heard it i really liked it because i think it really communicates what i'm trying to communicate in the book which is that this is not you know the water will come unless we all put solar panels on our rooftops or the water will come unless we all drive teslas or something i mean uh one of the things i'm trying to really underscore with this book is that sea level rise is going to happen even if no matter how much we We cut carbon emissions, no matter how um, dramatic the innovations are with clean tech and all of that. We're still going to see a significant amount of sea level rise in the coming decades and centuries.
0: So you'll do these media events, and I'm sure a lot of folks that show up to them are probably relatively friendly audiences. But have you been at any for the book that have you encountered a hostile audience?
1: Oh, sure. I mean, I think the most hostile crowd that I've encountered are are realtors, basically real estate agents, real estate industry, building industry. They're not happy about the message this book sends. They're not happy about talking about, you know, coastal real estate being inundated. They're not happy about the fact that it might make people think twice about buying coastal real estate. And they're especially not happy when I talk about ideas about mandatory disclosure of flooding and future flooding for real estate transactions. So those those are by far the most hostile people that I've encountered.
0: Well, you have some great stories within the book about some of the developers. And you spent a lot of time in Miami in the book and those kind of conversations that came out. Could you maybe share one that really stood out for you?
1: Well, I mean, Miami was the epicenter or is the epicenter of the book because it's the most obvious a place where there is so much at risk. And it's so kind of startlingly obvious to anyone who thinks about it for 30 seconds. I did spend a lot of time there. I mean, I I think I guess the most kind of compelling moment for me that uh, was most memorable was when I confronted George Perez, who's the biggest real estate developer in in Florida. And uh, known as the Trump of the tropics about how sea level rise and thinking about the future impacts how he thinks about development and how, and how he kind of plans his business. And he basically, you know, and I've been trying to get a hold of him for months and he, he didn't want to talk to me, but I actually ran into him, um, at the, the museum, the Perez art museum in Miami that bears his name. And he, and, and I asked him about sea level rise and how he thinks about these risks and he basically told me that he doesn't and that he doesn't concern himself with it because by the time it gets serious he's going to be dead so what does it matter and it for me kind of embodied the kind of short-sightedness and sort of lack of responsibility for you know what one builds and the world that we're developing that i think is symptomatic for why we're in so much trouble right now
0: well, it must be tough as as a journalist trying to have that conversation. But at the same time, what did you want to say to the guy when he said, had, "I guess had such a, I don't know, dour response to the situation."
1: I, there's not much you can say. I mean, um, you know, it's I, I we only had a few minutes to talk. I'm not sure that there's anywhere you can go from that. I mean, he he looks at this as a strictly business proposition, you know, and from a strictly business proposition, if you're developing a big condo or a condo development or or tower or office complex on the water. You know, what you're concerned about is can you get your money out in five years? And he doesn't see a problem with that, basically. You know, and and in a a strange way, I have a kind of respect for his bluntness on this because there is a question of whether how much responsibility he bears for this. He is, you know, a businessman and he is playing by the rules. And how much is the larger responsibility of politicians and other kind of government leaders who are sort of setting the rules of how development goes and how and whose job it really is to be thinking about our sort of long term welfare and economic well-being?
0: Well, I want to come back to Miami, but I I guess I want to get a bit more background. So you're contributing editor at Rolling Stone in I've just been curious. I have read Rolling Stone and you you guys are really just relentless in your climate coverage. And what's the history there? I mean, you don't have to be covering climate change like you do. Could you give a little bit of that background?
1: Yeah. yeah, so Rolling Stone has been around we just celebrated our 50th anniversary and it was sort of, you know, born with rock and roll and pop culture and you know, Jan Wenner, the publisher of Rolling Stone, has always had a very kind of broad vision that rock and roll is not just music. It's a kind of social and political and cultural revolution. And from the very beginning of the magazine, you know, he's had a very strong commitment to what started out in those days as sort of environmental stories. The early days of, you know, Earth Day, the first Earth Day celebration, the nuclear protests, all that kind of stuff we covered heavily. Uh, we did a monstrous piece. I think it was like 30,000 words or something on uh, the Exxon Valdez spill Uh, When that happened, I think that was in the late 90s or late 80s. And so the climate coverage kind of comes out of that tradition. And I've been writing about climate change for Rolling Stone for 15 years now. And it's it's an amazing journalistic commitment that Rolling Stone has made to this because People are not rushing to the magazine stands and airports and other places to buy my stories about climate change. You know, it's like I am not like making money for the magazine hand (laughs) over fist. Right. But but Rolling Stone's editorial vision has always been very clear that, you know, if we don't do these kinds of stories, we're just a sort of music rag. And that's not what we're about. And so, you know, I've been to Australia, I've been all over the world basically. I've been to they sent me to China to write about, you know, diplomatic negotiations for Rolling Stone. I mean, it's unbelievable the kind of commitment that that takes as uh, for journalism. Um and especially in the world today as long-form narrative journalism gets more and more squeezed out by clickbait and other kinds of just online kind of uh, journalism.
0: It really does add quite a bit of heft to the magazine. I think I'm reading an article on Tom Petty. And then you turn the page and it's just some serious climate change story. It really is sort of a unique thing and certainly appreciate that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I it's like I said, it's a um been an amazing opportunity for me and basically get to cover whatever I think is important. And this book would not have been possible without Rolling Stone. A number of Rolling Stone pieces turned, you know, I, I used in some version in the book, including my trip to Alaska with President Obama. My story about Miami, uh, a story called Goodbye Miami, first appeared in Rolling Stone. That was sort of the the, the sort of launching pad for the book. So it it really is a, a product of some of the years of work that I've done there.
0: Oh, that is that is I love that piece. Goodbye, MMA. I, mean, I remember when that came out. Yeah. Um I'm very excited I'm talking to the author of that piece when it came out. You know, it's it's been like four years and when it comes to climate change, that's almost like a lifetime. So I'm sure that probably weighed into your book, just to, the differences that even when you created that piece. Yeah, I mean that piece was caused a lot
1: of attention got a lot of attention and you know, it was Written in the aftermath of Hurricane Sandy when it, it, it came about because I went to New York after Hurricane Sandy. I didn't happen to be in the city that exactly went it hit, but I was there a few days later and um, I was thinking about how I would write about Sandy. And I, I talked to this climate scientist and he said, you know, one way to think about what happened with Hurricane Sandy is to think about it as a sort of dress rehearsal for sea level rise. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, you know, we had like nine feet of storm surge on lower Manhattan during Sandy. You know, and that's like the high end of what we might have for sea level rise by 2100. And he said, just imagine, you know, that nine feet of water coming in. And instead of going out after a couple of hours, as it did with Sandy, that water just stays in. And that's what sea level rise will look like. And I was like, wow, that's a pretty profound thought experiment. And then he said, you know, you really want to blow your mind, go have that same thought experiment in Miami. And, and I did. And I happened to go to Miami during King Tides. And, you know, there was three feet of water in the streets of uh, Miami Beach. And, you know, I, I was there for 36 hours and it became clear to me that Miami as we know it today is, is not going to be around by the end of the century. And that was the genesis of the Rolling Stone piece, Goodbye Miami, which. No one, I don't think, had really written about sea level rise in in a in in that kind of vivid and you know here it's going to happen and and this is what's going to happen and here it's how it's going to happen, and
0: you know it caused a lot of commotion and it launched me on this book. Oh, it was an awesome piece. You know, going to Miami, I don't know if you, when you f- flew into Miami, assuming you flew down there, a, a lot of the flights take you over the Everglades as you fly into the airport. And if you, it's daylight, I don't know if you, you got to see that perspective, just how flat South Florida really is. Did you, did you get a chance to look out the window?
1: Oh, sure. I mean, I've spent, you know, a good amount of time in the Everglades. And one of the striking things when you, you know, when I first started thinking about the risks of sea level rise in, in South Florida, and you start beginning to look at some of the inundation maps, is that it's not just the Miami Beach and the coast, the Atlantic coast that's at risk. When you get even modest levels of sea level rise, two or three feet, um, the water starts coming into Miami-Dade County from the Everglades. So the flooding is actually worse from the west than it is from from the east, from the Atlantic side uh, in, in Miami-Dade County. And that's really important for me and, and important in thinking about what sea level rise means and what adaptation means. Because if you're on Miami Beach, you know, there's right now, there's a lot of architects who are building, you know, the new condos that are elevated and have the critical infrastructure, uh, several floors up or on the roof and don't have underground parking anymore. And there's lots of ways of thinking about ad- adapting for building structures on the coast. But the real risk for Miami Dade County is in working class neighborhoods like Hialeah and Sweetwater. Where not only do you have a lot of low income, modest income kind of housing that is right on the ground that is very vulnerable, but they don't even know that they're vulnerable. They don't even they're not even aware of, of the kind of flooding that is that they're at risk for. And so I think that there's going to be, you know, kind of catastrophic consequences in these regions that no one is even beginning to think about uh, in, in the very near future.
0: Well, in your chapters on Miami, you might as well dig into that it, as some of the local officials are starting to grapple with it. And to their credit, I'm I'm originally from Florida. I worked in Florida doing climate change work, and they're really thinking about it. And you know, in the, the end of the day, I think, gosh, how do they fight this back? But uh, the point that I think you were trying to make is that the history of Miami there was all this sort of short-term thinking, and now today they're trying to sort of do this long-term planning. So there's this bedrock of short-term planning decisions, can they realistically sort of say, all right, we now want to plan for Miami for 100 years out? Right. So so Miami has, you know,
1: always been a kind of huckster's paradise, you know, I mean, a place where they paved over the swamps and sold real estate. And, you know, real estate has always been the engine of development there. And, and you know, you, anyone who's spent any time there can see that there's not been a lot of sort of grand strategy and how Miami going to grow. And there's a lot of problems with you know, traffic and, and all that kind of thing. But when you think about planning for the future, it's not just the sort of history of, you know, real estate development and sort of, you know, land grabbing. That's the problem. It's, it's the, the problem is the, the kind of culture that there is there. You know, this is a, a place that people go to, to Miami and to South Florida, you know, for, to, to get away. You know, it's a place of escapism, of hedonism, of pleasure, of fun in the sun. No one wants to go down there and, you know, think hard about the difficult problems of the future and and think about like raising taxes and what we're going to have to do to deal with this. And you have a very high foreign investment um, in Miami-Dade County, a lot of absentee uh, property owners, landowners who aren't even around to participate in these discussions. In the way that they are say in, you know, neighborhoods in New York and places in Boston and places like that. So the whole culture there works against any kind of sort of long-term coherent thinking about what we're going to do about this problem.
0: Well, you tossed out a lot of numbers in that book, and I just, you, you, I think you traveled around with, uh, Hal Wanless for a bit. Um, he's a sea level rise expert at the University of Miami, I, I believe. And so he, he's one of the folks that'll come out and say five, six, seven feet of sea level rise by the end of the century, whereas three feet is sort of the standard number people are talking now. I mean, you must have come up with your own personal number. I mean, wh- wh- where do you think it's going to come out at?
1: Well, first of all, let me be clear. I mean, the three foot number is the IPCC number that that you know basically every so, you know virtually every sea level rise scientist now uh, understands is sort of out of date. Mm-hmm. You know, the latest NOAA projections are are seven feet um, for the twenty one hundred. A lot of the all the recent science about what's going on in West Antarctica is underscoring that sort of in, that potentially higher end estimate so it's not like how Wallace is out there some kind of renegade voice i mean he's actually you know noah is is you know as establishment science as you can get in the united states and and they're saying seven feet so so the the increase of the high end potential risk here is kind of very real very kind of well accepted among virtually all of the climate scientists and, and glaciologists that i talk to so I, I mean, I don't have a personal number myself. I don't I don't think <laughs> about it in that way. I, I I'm not, a, you know, a sea level or scientist, but I understand science well. And I understand, more importantly, which scientists are sort of most credible and who are pushing the boundaries of uh, what we understand on this. And so that's how I that's how I focus my reporting on, like, as as you do with any other subject that you're trying to report accurately about is you you learn the field and you figure out who's got you know you know who's best at it and so the seven foot number i think is entirely credible what the risks exactly are of that i don't know but i do know that the the risks are ascending in the last decade you know they're they're getting higher and higher it's becoming clearer and clearer that we're not going to be cutting co2 emissions anytime soon the you know, carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere continuing to rise. I mean, it's very hard to see a scenario where, you know, we're, we're going to go kind of backwards in these projections at all.
0: Well, I should have qualified Professor Wanless. He was saying that at meetings I'd go to seven, eight years ago. And so he, he was ahead right. of the game. No, no, yeah.
1: He, yeah I, I mean, he was absolutely, I mean, he was absolutely so early, earlier in talking about this. And Wallace is great because I, I have a great deal of respect for him. Because he's really straightforward about it. I mean, he's not saying this is going to happen, but he's saying this is totally within the realm of what is possible. And you, meaning urban planners, politicians, people who care and love and care about Miami or South Florida or coastal, you know, cities around the world need to think seriously about this. This is not some sort of hypothetical. This is what science is telling us. And. The great thing about
0: Hal is his just kind of bluntness about it. Yeah. When you're, in these sort of local meetings and you're talking to folks, you, you have some commentary in the book, which I really enjoy of your own inside of how you think people are answering these questions. And I, I'm just wondering, what would sort of constitute courage for an elected official in Miami? If you think of seven feet of sea level rise, I mean, I, I sort of look at it, that city's gone. I mean, there are some engineering ways, I guess, to address some aspects of it, but it's not like New York City, as, as you mentioned. So what is courage for an elected official down there to have that conversation with people? I mean, you don't want to be doom and gloom, but at the same time, there it is. This is not unrealistic to talk about five, six, seven feet.
1: Right. And it's very hard for any politician to have that conversation because they're uh, within their election cycles. It doesn't really you know, help to to talk about this. Right. They're, they're, they don't get any sort of real benefit. It's not like very many voters are going to say, oh, mayor, X or Y or commissioner x or y talking realistically about you know what we're going to do with seven feet of sea level rise so i think i'm going to vote for him or her i mean it's not a way to 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 win support in general and yet it's the the important and moral and ethical and sort of the thing thing to do in this situation so it's it's very tough i mean so obviously what needs to happen not obviously but i mean within the realm of political reality what needs to happen is sort of Beginning of a step by step kind of thinking about this. And so there's the South Florida climate compact that is beginning to do things, you know, but certainly more things need to be done in the sense of uh, zoning, more kind of experimental projects of how we build uh, along the coastlines, m- much more rigorous building codes, some long, some attempts at some long range planning, beginning to think about what we're going to do about the airport for example in Miami how how that's going to be impacted and what potential fixes there are for that or relocation of that and also you know the hard talk about money about taxes i mean there's just going to have, have to be some other source of revenue for for infrastructure development and things and you know there's some talk now about a a, a developers fee that for for uh, when you develop a new building, there will be a, a fee that will go into a fund that will be used for various kinds of adaptation and things. And I think that if that were done right, that would be a big step in the right direction. So I, I think the job of a politician now is to really kind of get the conversation moving and get it really rolling beyond just sort of rhetoric about it.
0: You had mentioned that you had a chance to listen to the Matt Hauer episode. He's from University of Georgia, and he was looking at – he created this model of where people are going to migrate from the coast. And I think his numbers were like 13 million people. By 2100, are going to be migrating from the coast. A lot of it has to do with sea level rise. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. What his model was predicting – we had this discussion where I just – I didn't see it happening this way, and especially in light of your time in Miami, is that he saw that they would move – not that far away from where they originally were, whereas I thought thought a state like Florida, which literally could be unraveling on the coast, they're going to move a bit farther away. I mean, do, do you have thoughts on that? Do you remember the, the, some of those details from that episode? Yeah,
1: in fact, uh, I, I've talked to, to Matt about this. I mean, I, I mean, I think that what he's saying, and obviously he's an expert at this, and it's certainly true that in the past when you've had, you know, migrations of, of this sort, people have moved. Not so far away because they want to be close to family, relatives. So the first stop is to try to, um, kind of stay close. Uh, that happened after Katrina. A lot of people, of course, moved great distances in this thing called the uh, diaspora after, after, after Katrina. But also people, a lot of people moved relatively close also. So I think that there's a lot of sort of, you know, looking at history and how people have, have migrated before that, that Matt's talking about. And, you know, I I don't know. I mean, I think that one of the the great wild cards in all of this, how this will all play out is, you know, how is human psychology? I mean, how will people how soon will people flee when they start to see real estate prices declining? Will people move in in a speculative way? Certainly they will. But how many people will move in? You know, I think that you know, I have a chapter called Real Estate Roulette, which talks about how people are beginning to sell and move away already because they want to maximize the value of their houses and they don't want to risk losing money as as the water comes in. But then as real estate prices start to decline with water coming in, there's certainly going to be speculators who are going to be buying those houses up thinking that they can make money off them and things. So I think it's just really, there's just so much uncertainty around this, you know, I mean will people from Miami move to Orlando probably you know I think that Orlando's what 240 feet above sea level it's the new high ground in in South Florida and even before that people will probably move to Liberty City in 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 Miami Dade County itself which is the high spot uh, along the railroad tracks a kind of historically African American neighborhood where is it's you know a couple feet higher ground I'm sure, there's already been talk about developers Moving towards that area. So I don't know. And on the other hand, I was just in Asheville a few a few weeks ago and Asheville, North Carolina. And there was a surprising number of people who had moved there as kind of climate refugees, leaving, Mm. leaving the outer banks, you know, leaving Florida and thinking, oh, Asheville is a kind of really good place to weather out the coming storms.
0: I want to go back to the book a bit, and you, you had the opportunity to interview President Obama, and the, there's a couple sections there I, I want to bring up. And again, this is uh, your perspective that I found just – it was really interesting. And I, just for people that, that have the book, I, I'm going to reference at the bottom of page 85. I'm going to quote, this is a president, um, but I'm not presenting this in a way that leads people to think that we're doomed and there's nothing we can do about it. And of course, he's referring to, to climate change. And then you write – the way he said this, I wasn't convinced he believed we weren't doomed, but I let it pass. <laughs> and, and I just thought as it is very honest of you as a journalist, but I mean, I'm wondering if you could describe that moment a bit more and what what might had you said if you really didn't give him a pass on that?
1: Well, you know, I mean, I, I don't mean to kind of parse too deeply, you know, what that I understood kind of what the president was actually thinking versus what he said. But I I think that one of the things that became very clear to me in my conversation with President Obama is that he understood the risks of what we are facing very well. And his understanding of kind of climate science was very, very, very good. I mean, over the years, I've developed a really good kind of bullshit detector for people who um, uh, kind of read notes about climate science versus actually understand it and think about it. And he was certainly someone who um, understood it and thought about it. So at the same time, though, he as a job as as, uh, as president, is to inspire people. and he his whole point of his trip, as he said to me, was to sort of ring the bell of of alarm and get people inspired and in thinking about this and i think that you know he's a very practical politician and he knows that you know you have to give people hope and people tell me that all the time when i give talks that i have to give people hope and and that and i and i think that i mean my responsibility as a journalist is different than his responsibility as president but i think he felt that very powerfully that feeling of needing to give people hope and so I think that no matter what he really thought about how dire the science is, and I think he thinks it's pretty dire about what's coming, you know, he felt he feels an obligation and perhaps and probably justifiably to put the most hopeful spin that he could on all
0: of this. Well, I try to make this podcast pretty hopeful. I just I talked to a lot of people dealing with adaptation, and that's actually kind of a proactive position on climate change. And I, I think I have that reputation Of course, he can't but help me get caught up in doom and gloom. And when I think of the president, I work for the federal government, and I think of that that interview you had with him, and it's all about this framing. And so, president, he's talked about climate change, and maybe he'll be at some national park, and he'll talk about the impacts of climate change, and like you said, to inspire. But then I've given just a lot of thought, in conversations I have on this podcast It's like how you frame the urgency of this issue. And so. Okay, well, you're talking about climate change. You're talking about sea level rise at this location. And all of a sudden, you automatically, I think, undercut the urgency. I mean, why isn't it in the Oval Office? And I mean, when you talk about terrorism, there's we all automatically are just like, okay, wow, this is serious. Why can't we frame climate change like that? Well,
1: I mean, obviously, you know, a number of reasons. One is that, you know, terrorism and the threat of terrorism is something that, you know, could happen any moment. You know, we all remember 9-11. We all are freaked out when we're in a crowd and somebody leaves a backpack on the ground or something. I mean, we're, you know, it's like a risk to our lives, to our children, to people we love, you know, in real time. And the problem with the conversation around terrorism, of course, is that politicians are very good Um, at at exploiting those fears and you know as we see with the whole talk about with trump with the you know that it's all about you know people who are uh, illegally in this country and the whole you know going after muslims and and not pointing out that a lot of terrorism is caused by you know homegrown americans and people who are born in this country and all that so it's easily exploited you know the, the problem with Climate change, of course, is that it's a, a slow-moving catastrophe. It doesn't televise well, except when there's hurricanes. But, you know, a long time ago when I first started started talking, uh, reporting on on climate change, a scientist said to me that, you know, all of these problems of awareness and kind of motivation would be solved if only CO2, like, stained the sky purple. And we could see it, like, getting more and more purple every day people would take action. But of course, CO2 does not stay in the sky purple. And, you know, it's just easy to dismiss this as either, you know, not real or something that's only going to be a problem in 50 years or a hundred years. Like George Perez said, it'll be, you know, the developer that I talked about earlier, it'll be a problem, you know, when I'm dead. So I got to feed my kids. I got to deal with stuff now. So we'll put, we'll push that aside. I mean, One of the things that I tried to do in this book is to show that – two things. One is that sea level rise is not an environmental issue, really. It's an economic issue because of the impact it's going to have on coastal real estate and infrastructure. And that, that is happening now. It's not a future event. There's already massive erosion in many places. There's already counties that are going broke, trying to keep roads from washing away. There's already people selling out their houses. There's going to be, I would say, a significant decline in real estate prices in some coastal areas in the very near future. This is not a far off future thing. This is a here and now problem that's only going to accelerate and get worse.
0: I wonder how the public would respond, and you, you don't t- mention it the same way, but at, your, at the end of your book, you talk about just the, the impact of the, the asteroid. But I'm just, if 97% of asteroid scientists came out and said, in 75 years, this giant asteroid is going to hit the Earth. We can see it. We can map it. We know it's coming. And when it, But it's not coming for 75 years. Most of you will be dead before it hits. How would society respond? Because the, the science is pretty rock solid in, in a lot of areas with climate change. And so you have – that's something very I, – I would be curious how the public would respond to a threat that maybe makes more sense to them and yet is outside the time frame that they're just going to give a crap about.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that people could easily rally around a – you know an asteroid in 75 years kind of threat because an asteroid is much more like Hitler. I mean, it's like a thing that yeah, you can yeah. – That you can see and you know make movies about and talk about. We have the size of it, the trajectory of it. You can you know it's it's tangible in a way that climate change is not. And you also don't have a sort of pro meteor lobbying group uh, that, that is spending millions and millions of dollars lobbying, you know, prominent congressmen to say that there's no meteor or that we can't live without the meteor, or that the meteor provides us jobs, so we have to allow this meteor to come into, you know, our orbit. You know, I mean it's just it it wouldn't be, you know our debate about it would not be contorted by all of the money and politics that contorts the climate change debate.
0: I tell you what though, if they said, okay, we're gonna have an asteroid tax, there would be some lobbying group coming up saying, hey, leave the asteroid alone people are offended by taxes. I want to, uh, so in your book, you visit Venice and it, it's a great chapter. And I don't, what are they going to do in Venice? The, the, the extremes that they're taking to protect that city. But again, I want to read a quote from from you and please, uh, uh, correct me on my pronunciation here, but I imagine oh. standing on the key in front of the doji's palace. Or how do you pronounce it? Do- yeah. Doji's palace and feeling the city rising beneath me, tilting a little to the left, a little to the right, watching the cracks appear in the palace walls. And I love that quote. And you are involved with adaptation with this book. And to me, that to me is sort of like the future of like adaptation in the country, that that description right there. And I don't know if you had any other sort of ulterior motives to what you were trying to say there.
1: No, but I mean, that was, you know, in response to an engineer that talked about trying to lift the city up, because, you know, as most people know, Venice has been sinking for a long time. Um, because of groundwater pumping and other factors. And they finally sort of stabilized the, the sinking. But, you know, there's a lot of people who are thinking about how to save Venice in the future from rising seas. And they, there's a, they, you know, they, my chapter is basically about a barrier that they've attempted to build at the edge of the lagoon. But the other ideas are about trying to actually pump air, you know, in, into, into the ground to try to elevate the city six or eight or ten inches and and that they could buy time for Venice by doing that. And it's and it's as this engineer point pointed out to me, it's not an it's not an entirely crazy proposal. It's it's half crazy, but it's not entirely crazy. And so that passage you read was my kind of trying to imagine sort of, you know, Venice being sort of pumped up by this massive air compressor lifting the entire city up.
0: Well, I just thought it was just very useful. And I, as I think as other communities are going to adapt to climate change, it, they're going to, there's going to be sort of ridiculous solutions and things aren't going to go perfectly well. And, uh, you know, these cracks will appear. But anyway, it just it stood out to me of like adaptation isn't necessarily going to be pretty. So,
1: No, it's not going to be pretty and it's not going to be cheap. And as you pointed out, there's going to be a lot of um, harebrained projects that don't work and waste a lot of money. And Venice, what's going on in Venice with the barrier that they're trying to build – Um, out at the lagoon is a a great example of that. I mean, they're spending five, six billion dollars to build this, you know, a a movable barrier to keep the, the, that is, uh, one engineer calls a Ferrari on the seafloor. Um, and it's, you know, a, a barrier that, um, disappears. When it's not needed, and then during high tides or big storm surges the the walls of the barrier are filled with air and they float up to protect the city. and it's you know an interesting idea and it's very high tech and all that, but the problem is they spent twenty five years planning it, spent five or six billion dollars and didn't really factor in sea level rise, so it's going to be out of date very soon and it really points out the problem of how do you build big infrastructure at a time when you have uncertainty about what we're facing in in even the near term future. You could, you know, if, if scientists could say to city planners and engineers and others, you know what, we know it's going to be three feet of sea level rise by 2080, and it's going to be four and a half feet of sea level rise by 2100. So build your city accordingly and deal with that. And if that's what we, they could say and they knew, it would be a whole different kind of game. But that's not what they know. And no one is exactly clear what how high waters are going to rise or how fast they are going to rise. And so you have to think about how do you adapt a city, a place with flexibility so that if you don't need to build it, spend billions and billions of dollars building to protect six feet of sea level rise, if there's only going to be two feet. On the other hand, if you spend, you know, billions and billions protecting for two feet, and it turns out to be six feet, then you've just wasted billions of dollars. So this, how, how do you engineer with flexibility is one of the central questions of for coastal
0: cities for how
1: to adapt to what's coming.
0: You went to Paris when the Paris agreement was signed and you have a great story there. Could you just briefly describe what happened when the French president gabbled that meeting to a close? Oh,
1: it was a very um, emotional moment. I mean, I've been going to these climate meetings for years, you know, they're incredibly tedious, incredibly boring, you know, you just want to shoot yourself after you've been there for 36 hours. People are arguing in different languages about commas and everything. And the incredible tedium of years and years of nothing really happening on, you know, globally, in, in the sense of coming together, developing nations, fighting against uh, developed nations, and all this sort of just squabbling. And here in Paris, you know, it was just, I think it was partly because of uh, the the emotional atmosphere was amped up um, because of the terrorist attacks that had happened at a nightclub in Paris a few weeks right before the, um, the Paris summit. But here we had an amazing moment where, thanks to the hard work um, of the U.S., of sec- then-Secretary of State Kerry and President Obama, the Chinese had kind of come along and agreed to be part of this. The Indians w- were part of this. And all of a sudden you had this, great moment where everyone was standing in this hall, this great hall with, you know, there was like maybe five or 700 people, a thousand people, maybe there are people from all over the world. And when the French president brought the gavel down and said, we had an agreement, there was just this great sense that the world had finally kind of come together and, you know, recognize this threat and we're going to do something about it, even though it, you know, the Paris Agreement wasn't enough and it wasn't legally binding, but it was, it was sort of morally binding and it was a really amazing moment. And, you know, I just like turned to this woman next to me who I didn't even know and she like grabbed me and hugged me and she was, had tears <laughs> in her eyes. It was like some sappy, if you could write a Hollywood ending, yes. you know, to, to climate negotiations, it would have been like that. And so it would, but it was a very, it was like the, probably the most hopeful moment in, you know, all of my years of, covering climate change. I mean, cause it was like, okay, we all get it. This is happening to the, to the world and we all need to take action. And, you know, of course it didn't last too long, but, um, but,
0: but it was a great moment when it lasted while it lasts. It's going to outlive Trump. But, you know, so the point that, the, when you describe that moment and, you know, it was a very exciting moment just to read. And it, it occurred to me that here in the U S and just, you know, correct me if you, you read it kind of wrong is that I've sort of started to, Pitched this on the podcast that i look at the paris agreement is really one of the greatest moments in human history it's just like all these countries came together literally to save the planet that is a hell of a thing and i felt like the u.s did not take the chance to celebrate it. and i know it's still controversial here but like the you know trump and his stupid military parade but like did obama miss a chance to have his own climate parade i know all the environmental organizations were like all right this is a big deal but it just it was like oh that International thing over there, and but it's just should we have tried harder to really celebrate that moment and would it just have just penetrated into our the, our minds a bit more? I just I feel like it was a missed chance because it was such an important thing.
1: Yeah, but you know the political reality is that happened in December of 2015. You know the the election uh, was already underway. You know basically, you know I mean it, it, it's um, I think that no matter how hard you would have tried, it was just not something that would have broken through. I mean, I think that that's the sad fact about about these kinds of things. You know, there's just not enough people care about it. And, you know, there would have been a lot of attempts to subvert it. And, you know, I, I think that even among the climate advocates that I knew, I think that the larger kind of point at that time was to try to keep this rolling and get a Democrat elected president so that this they could build on this. And that was a much higher priority than, um, you know, kind of celebrating that moment per se. You know, the best way to celebrate the moment would have been to not even a Democrat to elect somebody president who would continue on and uh, building on this. And instead, of course, we got Donald Trump.
0: Well, I'm currently working on this three-part series, California Adapts, and one of the moments that we're highlighting is when Governor Brown, on the same day that Trump said he's going to pull out, he said, you know what, California is committed to this, and he went out and did something with the Chinese, and they're having a big meeting this fall in September in San Francisco. Are you going to attend that?
1: Yeah, no, I know that meeting. I I, I hope so. I I don't know for sure yet, but what Governor Brown is doing and and others, uh, Jay Inslee in Washington uh, and, and many other you know, mayors and officials around the country is really inspiring. And, and, you know, part of me thinks sometimes that what Trump has done is going to, in the long run, build the movement and getting more people engaged and getting more people to really understand sort of what's at risk. And, you know, maybe when you look at this in, the, in a longer arc, um, he will have done a lot to have built the movement and to build awareness of, of what's coming.
0: that'll be the footnote of history his only positive uh, (laughs) influence was getting us just get off our asses so i have a couple more questions you've covered climate change very extensively i i've followed you over the years it's you you really get it and you write it in a way and you you're at the Rolling Stone magazine. And it's just I think it's such a useful format, and I'm just curious, what's next? I mean, you've covered these different topics. Do you have sort of a master plan when it comes to climate change, or do you just kind of learn something new and you're like, maybe I'll go cover that? I mean, is there a master plan? And so, what's next for you? <laughs> yes, I've got all. I have it all worked out. Right, for like right. Twenty years. I know exactly
1: where. No, I, you know, it's it's all um, one piece goes to the next piece, and I don't have a master plan. I don't know. I mean, everything changed when Trump was elected. I mean, it changed the whole dynamic of everything. And so, you know, I don't know what's going to happen next um, or where I'm going to go next. I I do think that migration and people moving around is a very big story. That's going to be a a much bigger story. Um, I have actually a piece in Rolling Stone coming out about that in a few weeks. So I think that that is, is going to be an increasing part of our discussion as time goes on. I think the way that you know money is moving around, in the sense of how much money is really going into uh, adaptation, into even into clean tech, you know, can we change these sort of great rivers of cash that flow into fossil fuels and distort our conversations about uh, climate change? Can those kind of be shifted uh, in in ways that haven't happened yet? Um, I thought that what Um, The head of BlackRock, giant investment group that manages trillions worth of dollars worth of uh, investment, said a few weeks ago about how corporations that don't start to think long term about climate change and the impacts of climate change are going to lose their social license to operate. uh, But people will basically blacklist them. And for someone like him, who's such an establishment figure to talk like that, I thought was really interesting. Um, Moody's saying that they're now going to look at climate adaptation as part of bond ratings for cities and states, I think, is a really big deal. So I think those kinds of things are where it, it, it's moving. But, you know, I, I don't know. <laughs>
0: Well, I will keep on reading. And, you know, if you get a chance to listen to another one of the, the podcast, I, I talked to Vox's David Roberts, and it was sort of more of a philosophical discussion on adaptation. I think you might find interesting, and I, I hope you keep writing about adaptation. And, in fact, I think of you, he's someone that you just, I don't know if you know him, but just to hang out and have this conversation, it, it would probably be quite enjoyable for you. I mean, do you ever read David Roberts? He was at Grist for a long time.
1: Oh, yeah. You yeah, know, I know David very well i don't know him very well um i've known of i've known his work for a long time he's great i think he's really good at what he's doing i'm really happy to see him at box i i read everything he writes i think that he's one of the sort of most distinctive voices on all this not just adaptation but on you know he really understands the nuances of energy policy and and and
0: economics in a way
1: that really
0: few people do so yeah i'm a big fan Well, you know, he actually didn't write a lot on adaptation. I sort of took him to task on the podcast because he had been dumping on adaptation for a bit. But he sort of come around. But it was kind of that fun conversation because he does focus mainly on energy and mitigation. So, yeah.
1: So one of the things I've been trying to say with this book that, that I think is really important, and I try to say in conversations around the country, which is that, you know, I think really, and I think David, what you're talking about with David is, in a way, part of this is that So much of the conversation about climate change has been on the sort of emissions reduction side of it. You know, how are we going to get cheaper solar panels? How are we going to displace coal? All that, which is really important and really true. And I wrote a book about the coal industry. I get that. But but I think what's really important now, as we know that we're not we're going to blow through these climate targets of two degrees of warming and things like and something that I really understood in reporting this book is that we need to have a simultaneous conversation about adaptation because this stuff is happening now. It's going to happen. And we really have not really had a very good conversation yet about how we're going to adapt to this, whether it's sea level rise or wildfires or extensive droughts. I mean, look what's happening in Cape Town right now. I mean, I think that the adaptation side of the conversation is really way behind the. um emissions reduction side of the conversation and so i'm really glad that you're doing the kind of things that you're doing to help stimulate that
0: Will you have an open invitation when any sort of article comes out you want to talk about it because yeah i mean not too many people are actually filling that adaptation niche, at least in the podcast universe so yeah please whenever <laughs> i would love to get you back on last question and this is what i ask of everyone and you probably see this one coming is like if you could recommend a guest to come on the podcast and if you can help get that guest that's even better but who would you recommend
1: um, I think getting a uh a big real estate developer uh on the show would be really interesting to hear about how someone who is actually investing in in coastal real estate especially uh thinks about this be would be great i think also the national security side of this with so people from the Pentagon or people who understand the, uh the i know you've had some guests uh in that realm let's see who else would be good um
0: it's sort of like, I'm really looking for you know for, first I need to get a little bit more diversity as my my guest list too um, but yeah I'm just looking for like adaptation is really wonky and technical and I, I'm trying to like, like having someone like David Roberts or even yourself come on it's just it's sort of a I guess a kind of a refreshing perspective on it and so I am just kind of looking for those things because I'll, I'll always have those kind of technical people come on and talk about what they're doing so yeah I'm just looking. to to kind of get people uh, using their imagination of what adaptation could mean. So if it doesn't come to you now, just, yeah, anytime you you have an idea, please think of the podcast that way.
1: I mean, there's some, you know, in my book, I mentioned this Miami architect named Rinaldo Borges who did a a sketch for me uh, in the book about platform cities and things. Uh, He's really smart about stuff. Someone like him who's actually trying to imagine how to build the future um, is interesting. And I also think that, show could be great to have people who are actually impacted you know i mean who who whose houses people live on who are living on the gulf who are dealing with trying to sell their house or move away and, and are having problems with that and you know how they're adapting you know not just in a physical structure way but emotionally and you know financially and economically uh getting really onto the ground, um, with people, uh, who
0: are experiencing this in real time would be really interesting too. No, that's a great idea. I've done a few on location ones, but I want to do more of that. So, yeah, Jeff, uh, again, this was an honor to have you on it, I, I've been following you for years and I appreciate you taking the time, but just any sort of final thoughts before we close this out?
1: Uh, no, I mean, other than, you know, that I'm really glad that you're doing what you're doing, because as I said, I think we need to be, uh, we're moving into this sort of adaptation world now. And I think that, you know, this is, this is um, the future. I think that our world is changing very fast and we need to talk a lot more about what we're going to do about that. All right, great. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for having me.
0: Hey, adapters. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Jeff Goodell. As I mentioned earlier, I wanted to introduce Alex Stocksdale, the intern working with America adapts this semester. Here's Alex. Hey adapters, we are back, and this is just a little bonus that I have at the end of this conversation with Jeff Goodell. I am very excited, and you know I get excited about a lot of things, to introduce a person that's working with me as my intern this semester, and it's Alex Stocksdale. Hey Alex, how's it going?
2: Hey Doug, it's uh, I'm well. I think thanks for uh, having me on at the end of your podcast.
0: <laughs> the way you make it sound, the end of your podcast, uh, that sounds bad. No, save the best for last. All right, Alex, I want to introduce you and just maybe give a little bit of background of what you're doing. But Alex has been with me probably three or four weeks now, really helping on a lot of important things with marketing the, the podcast, and I'm going to let him explain some things that he's doing. But Alex, where are you at right now? What's your background?
2: Yeah, sure. So right now I'm at the University of Maryland, College Park. Uh, I'm studying atmospheric and oceanic science, minoring in sustainability. But I've come to discover that that's, you know, that's not enough, and I'm, I'm creating my own major. So that's, that's really exciting.
0: Okay, you just explained to me this new major you're creating, and I'm going to put you on the spot. You need to explain it really quickly in a short description, what you want to do with this new major.
2: Sure. So this, this is really um, a combination of lots of things that include economics, politics, science, technical science, um, aspects, really everything that I need to create social change.
0: Well, and folks, just my conversations with Alex. He's new to the university, but he's just jumped right in, getting involved with things on campus. Just, I'm very encouraged that there are people out there like Alex, and I'm very fortunate that he's excited to work on the podcast. And on that note, we were introduced by my former intern, uh, Lisa McCullough. But so why were you interested in in, in doing this internship?
2: So I've always been, uh, I've always been interested in science communications. Some of the, the real, Things that attract me are, you know, the, the documentaries and and the, of course, you know, the the podcasts and, and, and the YouTube videos and, and these forms of media that are really, really attractive and, and inspiring. And, and I really wanted to be a part of it. Um, I wanted to, you know, explore my communication skills because I know as I develop my career, I'll not I'll not only need to uh, in, in my sector, but I need to communicate what I'm doing effectively to the public. So that's why that's why I'm here
0: so what what's the plan what are you doing how are you helping me out here
2: sure yeah so as, as the episodes come out i'm reaching out to um relevant organizations um to, to share the word because uh, this is you know the information in you know in in the podcast is is so um, is, is so important it, it really has to be heard by the organizations who, who will benefit from um from from hearing it so um that's the example of what i'm doing um now, I also want to create a some type of program for 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 student outreach. Uh, I, w- I want students to sh- to share their their voices as well. Additionally, I'm also working on a newsletter.
0: Yeah, folks, when I first got started with Alex, he had a sheet of things that he his ideas and such. And I was quite impressed. <laughs> and uh, it's all I can do to keep my head above water and some of the stuff that I'm doing. So I was excited with some of these ideas. And of course, he's got his full plate of classes at University of Maryland, and he's working on so we're figuring out exactly how he's targeting his work with me, but it's incredibly helpful as a a small shop. So I'm very thankful for Alex. And on that note, good. Okay, Alex, uh, thanks for coming on. And we'll probably get you on again at some point because I think you're going to be helping me for a little bit here. So uh, thanks again for everything that you're doing for Apps.
2: Sure, thanks, Doug.
0: Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap to a fantastic episode. Many thanks to Jeff Goodell for coming on to the podcast. He does amazing work at Rolling Stone magazine. He's already come out with a great piece on climate migration since we recorded. So check it out. Some final housekeeping. Don't forget to join the Facebook book and the Facebook community group. The group is private, but just search for America Adapts and ask to join, and I will approve right away. It's a chance to hear sort of insider conversations and to see what other listeners are sharing on the wall. We've had some great conversations on there, so please join the group. Also, I say this in every episode. I love hearing from you. I mean it. Just say hi. Tell me about a favorite episode. Give me an idea for a guest. It is the highlight of my week because it's always something different and exciting. So I can be reached at americadapts at gmail.com. Send me an email. All right, up next, the long-awaited premiere of the three-part California Adapt series, and that's on March 12th, just one more week. All right, check out the website at americadapts.org. All this information is in my show notes, especially the link to the donate page. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.